0: Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. In this first episode of 2020, we're going to look at the year ahead, first in the market and then in exhibitions. Before we begin, just a reminder that you can sign up for our free monthly newsletter, Art Market Eye. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The next newsletter will drop into your inbox on the 30th of January. Now, I'm delighted that the people behind that newsletter are here to talk about the year ahead in the art market. We've got Anna Brady, who's our art market editor. Hello, Anna. Hello, Ben. And our deputy art market editor, Margaret Carrigan, who's normally based in New York, but is here in London. Hi. So let's begin. It's it's much easier to review the year in the market, as you did, Anna, last podcast, uh, than to predict what's going to happen in the art market. But there are some sort of clear themes that we can identify. Let's talk about this ongoing and increasingly prominent issue which is how's the art market responding to green issues and to its massive carbon footprint do you want to begin with that Anna?
1: Yeah I think it's really interesting because it's something that we weren't even really talking about I would say in say 2017 and the kind of mainstream coverage of the art market and really the large commercial galleries I think really just last year they actually started having to respond to these questions quite seriously and having to really think what they're doing to try and redress this balance because as we all know, flying to God knows how many fairs all over the world and taking a lot of works from them creates a huge carbon footprint, as it would with any large event. Um, so I think a lot of them are, t- are starting to think about what they can do to scale back on that. But for me, I, it still feels like they're still paying sort of lip service to it. And they're having to show that they're thinking about it. But, you know, Mark Limpshire of... Pace Gallery, he told us that whilst they're thinking about it, he's basically not going to stop flying and they won't stop going to these fairs because they still need to be there in person, in his opinion. So I kind of wonder whether we're going to start seeing more of this sort of carbon offsetting so those galleries that can afford to may well just start throwing money at the problem and paying sort of you know, maybe making a thing of of paying some large sums um to go towards uh offsetting some of that large cost rather than really changing much in the way in what they're doing aside from I don't know, using paper cups and not using so much plastic.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think we you know, a couple of years ago we started seeing a lot of artists making work responding to the climate crisis and now I feel if I can be really cynical there are a lot of people in the art trade that realizing that they want to represent these artists and keep their artists happy are like oh yes 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 we're very concerned about this as well but like Anna said it is to a certain extent um, just how the art market is built and I, I honestly just to play devil's advocate the art world and the art trade specifically are very small in in the broader scheme of things. And I think what what we need to be talking about more is the industries that kind of fuel the art trade, which are the major money-making industries that have the big carbon footprints. So I think what's going to be difficult for the art trade to overcome if they really do want to take, you know, climate issues seriously, is that their client base are the people buying the yachts, taking the private jets, all these things. Like, You can't change your clients necessarily, so how do you respond to that in real time and and meet them where they are in different ways?
0: This is really fascinating, isn't it? And to what extent can can a gallery uh, dictate terms to its client base? I mean, are there any previous instances where you're conscious that um, galleries would take an ethical lead in certain issues?
1: (laughs) I don't think it can really. I think it's kind of... I think it's quite interesting with the art world because it's it's really, it's quite left-leaning. We like to think we're quite sort of left-leaning and a lot of these galleries are, are trying to appeal, you know, there's a huge amount of talk about how to appeal to millennials because there's supposedly going to be this huge wealth transfer. So they need to be appealing to worthy millennials. Well like maggie and i really um (laughs) with a lot more cash (laughs) um (laughs) and they need to be appealing to us in terms of sort of what they're what they're outwardly saying but they might be left-leaning ideologically but they're really quite right leaning in terms of their capital or capitalism dependent as well so i don't think at the moment they can dictate terms or ethical values to their top end clients I
2: I agree with that. But then I also just want to offer an anecdote. To, I, I'm not, I think you were with me when we were in Art Basel last year. Um, we were at this party, uh, a Gagosian party, and this artist told me that he had walked to Basel from somewhere in Austria because he was trying to reduce his carbon footprint. And I, I am so embarrassed to say that I laughed at him because I thought he was joking. And then he's like, no, 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 really, I I did. And I was like, oh. Crap! We need to take like this is this is really gonna got to change. Like he's doing the Lord's work out there, so <laughs> there'll be a lot more people. <laughs> so I'm part of the worst part of it because I was laughing.
0: I mean, it, surely the, the the sort of key factor in this is that if we are to imagine a future art world in which there are fewer flights being taken and fewer works being shipped, the online provision needs to become more prominent, right? And is there any sense in which galleries are doing more online too, as, as a kind of means of becoming more ecologically minded?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's this um, rise of the kind of online virtual viewing room that some of the big galleries like uh, Gagosian and, and its Hauser as well, I think they're doing Hauser. And and they? Yeah, so they're doing these um, virtual viewing rooms online during fairs. I didn't know that that has got anything to do with cutting back on a carbon footprint. I think that's just another sales platform.
0: So let's talk about a major fair that's coming up on the rails, which is Freeze Los Angeles. Um, where where do we see Freeze fitting into the ecosystem of the fairs, uh, Maggie? And what is it doing in order to propel itself, you know, up onto that higher echelon of, of fairs?
2: I think Freeze is a really interesting case study right now because obviously there over the past several years there's been a lot of resistance to the traditional fair model. A lot of galleries saying that it's it's not sustainable financially and wanting to find alternatives to that. Um, I don't know that Freeze has drastically moved the needle on that um, and in fact has opened you know Freeze LA last year, so this is its second edition. Um, what we're seeing this year, though, is uh, they are trying to, I think, build it into more of a... Entertainment slash media slash slash event uh, platform, and a lot of that has to do with you know their new ownership stake, which is Endeavor, uh, based in LA, and is, is working in meet across media things like that. So that seems a logical move for them as they move forward. But then, with that comes new new um, kind of terms, and uh, it's a different playing field in LA. And I think we're seeing that mirrored, especially this year, with their crackdown on exhibitors exhibiting across fairs generally there's been this kind of turn a blind eye thing to galleries that want to participate in more than one fair you see this at freeze london Uh, you see many galleries participating in different fairs across the city because there's so many going on you saw it especially in new york last year where i think about 10 percent of all freeze exhibitors were also exhibiting at TEFF new york Um, And then all of a sudden there is zero overlap in between Felix, the other upstart fair in L.A. And um, a lot of that has to do with Freeze kind of saying, look, we want to take over this market. We've got a plan to do it. Here's how we got to do it. You got to be you got to be on side with us to that end. There are a lot of larger fairs. Art Basel is one of them that does kind of keep a watch on that and does ask galleries to refrain from participating in other fairs. But there are a lot of fairs that still do not ask that. Or if galleries do, they just kind of like let it lie. Or maybe have like a backseat conversation later on and be like, you know what, if you couldn't do that again. Um, so I think it's really interesting that, that it, it's so kind of clearly marked this time around. And and what that means for Freeze going forward is I think they're going to try and really take a, a stronger lead within L.A. and Further, as that market professionalizes, because it is LA, still is a small kind of community of artists and and dealers, um, globally speaking. But it has a lot of weight and interest behind it that I think that um, it's a smart move for Freeze, but it could actually prove difficult for exhibitors, especially local ones. I mean,
0: I mean the question that comes to my mind is: Isn't Freeze assuming that it has a, a sort of well of trust from its dealers in order to be able to begin enforcing this
1: quite interesting in terms of the power balance i think there, there's always a sort of slightly strained sort of power dynamic between fair organizer and exhibitor particularly when these galleries are really powerful they're really big as well and there's a bit of a tussle i always sense between them so for a fair to be so outwardly telling um, its exhibitors what to do is interesting and also There's always a question about whether who is the client for an art fair as well. You know, are they, are the galleries their clients or are the visitors, their clients? And in this case, if the gallery is the client, you're sort of telling your client what they can't really do. Um, But it's interesting. You do, I do wonder with Freeze LA as well whether, from a a distant sort of perspective, you see the hand of endeavour much more clearly when it comes to Freeze LA, than you do in New York and London. Like, I feel like that's endeavor's fair.
0: So it's their local market, right? I yeah, mean, it's, it's they, know, they company, know the game. So, so they're sort of pulling rank a bit more in LA.
2: Absolutely. And I think it actually, for me, I think it is really an interesting fair to watch because, I, as I said, more galleries fight against the traditional fair model if they are able to leverage this into a more multidisciplinary platform, um... Especially as, you know, there's been a lot of attention also paid to experiential artworks and, and performance. And they're blending that with film. They have a new filmmaker award this year as well for Freeze LA. I think we're seeing this diversification in what it means to present art to a large audience through what, their business plan. And I, I'm kind of curious just to see what happens. I mean, that,
0: I'm intrigued by that because these are ultimately forums for selling art. It's a trade fair. So, what does that experiential, more experiential experience, that diversification of media actually do for the galleries, for the clients? Is it is it more about showing off what they do then than selling these days? Is that is that what is that the argument that that fairs shift in what they're actually for?
2: That's a tough question. I would say I think that we're trying to figure out what exactly it's doing. Um, that's the real time question. Um, overall, I and this is purely my opinion but i i think it's just kind of mirroring other major retail kind of uh branding strategies especially you see in fashion and whatnot like just doing the big pop-up event that draws people that gets people involved and then you can kind of sell a bunch off the back end of that Uh, as far as i
1: see it's, it's like the flip side to the online the growth of online as well you have to provide something to make it worthwhile to take your flights to go and see these fairs as well. And yes, they are trade fairs, but they they never like to admit that they're trade fairs. But these are trade fairs, and yeah, the central purpose is still to sell art because they cost a hell of a lot of money to do as well. So people need to sell things. But for for the past decade or so, because such is the competition between these fairs, and also because of people like us, because of journalists who need some kind of angle on them, they've had to be sort of adding bits on and around it whether that's a talks program or the special sections which address different often sort of different current affairs or provide some sort of experiential, um, experiential experience <laughs> for the visitor then uh, that sort of all has to come together now people just people won't just go to a to a fair just as a trade fair just to buy art because the art business is all about the experience and all about being seen to be there as well, and and all the added extras.
0: Right. Uh, let's talk about another art fair that's coming up on the road. That's coming up in March. It's Art of Basel in Hong Kong, and I have to say that when this is discussed in the press, there's a sort of it feels like there's a sort of shameless ignorance of this massive human rights issue being played out on the streets of Hong Kong, and all we're hearing about is oh, we're worried about the clients, we're worried about the art, we're worried about the security, and it seems you know. Uh, you know, it's in a way it really puts into sharp relief the extent to which the art market can at times feel very, very divorced from the real world. So, what's going on with the Art Basel in Hong Kong
1: fair? It's a good question. I don't know that that many people really know. I mean, it is going ahead at the moment. What we know now is is that I think um, the FT reported that the three galleries who have actually dropped out. What Art Basel have said is that they will reduce the withdrawal fee. Um, to 75% of the booth cost rather than 100%. I mean, that's still quite a lot of money.
0: Can you give us a, a bit of an indication of how much money?
1: You're talking sort of from about $40,000 and upwards. I mean, it's different for some of the special sections. But that would be a, a cheap booth, I would say. But it could well be up to sort of $100,000. So it's it's a lot of money. Um, so three galleries have pulled out um, and there's also we did an article in the January issue about how insurance for taking the artworks there has also piked obviously because the insurance market reacts so it's around about 20 times the normal rate so say it's normally n- 0.1% of the cost of an artwork to insure it um, to go to an art fair and um, so now it's 2.1% which is quite a quite a huge hike considering how many artworks you might be taking to a fair um so yeah it's kind of and and questions are coming up now as to whether you're seeking insurance off the terrorism market or sort of whether this is just civil unrest so there's a lot of questions going on around that and i think i think a lot of galleries are still quite confused as to what they should be doing it's a logistical nightmare for them although i completely agree with you and that we're talking about insurance and booth costs and logistics when it's a huge human rights issue as well going on on those streets so it does it does feel slightly wrong
2: to be talking about that but practically (laughs) it's a big problem interestingly i think in that same ft article that you mentioned anna it also noted that the galleries that still want to participate in are planning on participating, um, they are going to take a slightly different strategy in their event planning. You know, just having us talked about all the uh, event driven um, marketing uh, around something like Freeze L.A., there are a few galleries that are, quest- you know, saying like, well, it's a little bit tone deaf to just host a major party amidst all of these riots where people are putting their lives on the line every day. So I think to a certain extent that acknowledges the rarefied space that the art world does exist in because all things considered it it you know the fair probably will not be that heavily impacted as things stand now by these riots, by these protests in as much as that we just have to be mindful of that space that we occupy as this kind of very top tier um, rich wealthy industry. Yeah, it's a very good
1: point about the, being tone deaf. I mean, the market can be quite tone deaf sometimes. <laughs> so it's really good. It's really good that some galleries are actually At considering. At least one. <laughs> yeah, well, the, there is one gallery that we know of who is considering <laughs> the day, how, whether or not they were a bit tone deaf.
0: While we're talking about galleries. Um, it already this year there was a big announcement from Wirth about the fact they're going to now represent George Condo internationally. There is increasing competition for the major artists, the big market artists, isn't there? And it seems to be sort of growing increasingly prominent.
1: Yeah, it's been a major, major theme, this sort of tussle over the top artists. I mean, George Condo, yes, but also two more. Yeah. It wasn't, hasn't just been him, it's three so far. In, and we're not even at the end of January yet. So if they carry on at that rate, that'll be like, what, 36 by the end of this year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it, it's a very competitive world out, out there. We will be publishing in the February issue. A lawyer's actually written a piece for us about um, three different recent case studies negotiating splits between artists and galleries, in some cases working for the artists, in some cases for the galleries. But the lawyer who wrote this has said that that's... a really increasing area of the market for them they're increasingly getting artists as well rather than galleries coming to them saying look I need to leave my gallery or I want to make sure that I can be represented by more than one gallery right. which is another rising trend too so again we we were talking about power balances earlier between fair and exhibitor there's another area of, of sort of this tussle for power between artists And gallery too Mm -hmm. and I think that's something that's going to become even more of a theme this year really as the stakes continue to rise for sort of hot artists and estates.
2: Yeah I think the um the uptick in joint representation that we've seen just in the last year alone is pretty crazy and I think we're just going to see more of that and also in our February issue we talked to an LA dealer who has never enforced exclusive contracts, and she's just like, "Why, yeah, why would you do that?" Because the you like artists need, you know, galleries specialized in different markets and can get artists where you need. And so, I think that also points to the art world mirroring more entertainment industry kind of. Um, benchmarks and, and and looking for that kind of uh, flexibility of having agents rather than galleries in some ways.
0: So just explain about joint representation a little bit more because obviously artists have long had a London rep- representation and a New York representation. Are you saying that artists are increasingly represented by two galleries in the same city now?
2: I think that's still slightly rare, although it does happen from time to time. Um, it's mostly different cities. Or, you know, different elements of their work in some cases. Or, you know, the kind of... um, This dealer, Suzanne Vielmetter, that's in L.A., she... Uh, kind of talked about how artists need different things at different times and negotiate different contracts based on what that is. She's like, sometimes they want to make a major installation. So you negotiate based on what that funding will look like that. Sometimes they just had a baby and need to take some time off but still need to be making money. So like, what does that kind of sales contract look like? And that also to bring it full circle, brings brings it back to like the um, professionalization of the art market. Like we're seeing so much more attention paid to contracts rather than just good faith agreements.
3: Right.
1: Yeah,
2: that's true, actually. That's something that obviously lawyers love a contract, but
1: they were pointing out that the contracts are, are really key, which obviously go against a lot of the, the, the sort of art world's idea of, of a relationship, a sort of emotional, friendly relationship between artist and gallerist. But really, they need to have it um, down, you know, written down and in black and white what their arrangement is.
0: It's interesting this because it, it, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be quite astonished to know how much of these massive money relationships have been based on something like a gentle person's agreement, a gentleman's agreement with between artist and dealer. You know, there has been, oh, well, you get 50% and I get 50%, nothing written down and and a kind of as you say a kind of an emotional connection where an artist will stay with a dealer for for a long time and and that arrangement seems to work but but it seems from what you're saying that there is an increased professionalization of that relationship yeah
1: because i think that just really shows when it starts when that relationship sours if if it sours then it starts to show how at the very beginning none of these things were set out um so and then it can get really quite bitter but I think in terms of the multiple representation, just to return to that quickly, there's also, um, you know, you might get five different galleries working with an artist who has really sort of risen up through the ranks. And I think this is very positive, but that their initial galleries, the smaller galleries that they first work with, are still representing them as well. And I think there's a bit of a trend to, to be seen to be very kind of civic-minded um by some of the big galleries who might have taken who later taken them on that they are still working with the first galleries and hopefully that's something that the artists themselves have insisted upon as well and that they you know they want to keep that loyalty to the smaller gallery that first gave them their first show
0: something that both of you have noticed is that there is a lot of attention being given to young figurative artists many of them women on the market at the moment um tell us about that and what are the implications of it
1: well, I think it's a really good thing. I think a lot of these women are doing really good work and, you know, I'm thinking of people like Shabalala herself, Julie Curtis as well, um, and Enchideka Crosby too. And they're doing, a lot of them are doing works which are obviously very much focused on the body and sort of our idea of identity as well and how we sort of present ourselves, which are obviously big themes generally in society and I think that's part of the reason that they're quite so popular. I think it's quite interesting to look at these artists, I do think that they will continue to be where where quite a lot of the heat in the market, certainly in the day sales and in some of the evening sales will be throughout this year it's quite interesting to sort of go back almost 10 years and think about the zombie formalists and how they were nearly all white men really and I'm not a huge fan of their work personally but it's sort of interesting how they were sort of picked up by the market and obviously went mad um, and have since been rather unceremoniously dropped I hope and I think that won't be the case with a lot of these female figurative artists but you do sort of wonder how how long this will be sustained as well. I think it's definitely where the big booming trend is within, certainly within the auction market at the moment. What do you think about that Maggie? I
2: think it's, I mean I, I agree with you wholeheartedly but I, I also think it's really interesting and I think what we have to be really conscious of when we are talking about you know work by female artists, minority artists that is gaining a bigger market. Obviously, you want to support that market. You want to, like, white men have dominated the art trade for centuries. And to finally see, you know, other artists breaking into that is really exciting. And you do want to throw your money at it. But you have to be conscious of who you throw your money to. Because when the auction houses capitalize on that, none of that money makes it back to the artist. So I think that's the one thing that... You know, I I disagree with a lot of the um, kind of discourse around it that this is entirely exploitative. I don't think that that's the case, but it can quickly become that. And whereas and I think it's a very slippery slope for female and minority artists that are having that success, because unfortunately, they don't have a backlog of history and prices like a lot of white male artists do to support their market if it does kind of bottom out all of a sudden.
0: It seems to me that it's really, really crucial that the galleries themselves are- Behave very responsibly and really look after these artists, because that's one of the things that I've noticed in the past is that these stratospheric prices that suddenly arrive for those, as as they are now known, the zombie formalists. It, there was a sense in which you know there was like who's who's monitoring this, who's actually taking responsibility for looking after these artists, because it it, it felt like a bubble the minute it started, and you knew it was going to burst. So I suppose you know it, it's something where we need the galleries to really look after their artists at this point.
1: Yeah, I and mean, that was also a bubble that was really inflated by flipping. That was when we first really started talking about flipping works too. And explain what flipping is. um... So flipping is to buy a work on the primary market, so buy it, say, from from the artist gallery, and then to um, very quickly put it into auction with the hope of making a fast profit. Because really, the the problem with buying from a gallery is that um, you need to get access to that, and the gallery will control who will be allowed to buy those works because they don't want them to be flipped into auctions and then at auction you haven't got very many works but it's open it's like an open playing field so you get these much higher sums paid for these artists just because anybody can access these works when they're at auction so yeah i mean it can be a very fast way of making a quick profit on a hot artist
0: right so to conclude this one we're actually going to sort of see very neatly into our next section where we're going to be talking about exhibitions of the year but, and, the, and the issue that we're going to be talking about lastly in this conversation is this idea that we touched on actually in the year in review last, last year which is the increasing presence of commercial gallery sponsors in museum shows can you tell there's a, there's a big story by Annie Shaw in the February issue of the art newspaper coming up what's, what's, what's happening and is there a shift
1: so we've very much looked at just the UK institutions for this. And it's set against the context of sort of toxic philanthropy and museums having to be much more careful about who they accept money from when it comes to the fossil fuel firms um, with the recent Sackler um, scandal as well. Uh, so they're obviously they need money. Funding is being cut. They need money to put on these shows and there is a rise in auction houses and the commercial galleries sponsoring shows and obviously they're going to sponsor shows which are in the field that, that that's in their interest that might be of their artists or artists that states that they represent um so and it'll be something that they want to be they want their brand to be aligned with as well um and i don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with with doing that and it's understandable but then you've also got the fact that a major museum show for an artist will definitely impact upon its price uh, upon that artist's prices at auction as well, and you can quite closely correlate those two things if you look back so it's slightly questionable when it comes to that as sort of to how you know the ethics of of doing that um and whether that should perhaps be something that's looked at us a little a little bit more closely but I'm not saying that it's totally
2: you know it's not a wrong thing to do. Yeah, I think it's just a changing public sentiment toward it. Um, and it's it's not necessarily new, but it is more visible. And I think that the, as that conversation grows, in the U.S., uh, commercial and corporate sponsorship and the, you know, attending tax write-offs is you know, what America's built on. So <laughs> that's not new at all. But um, especially, I think, after, you, you know, you've seen things at the Whitney all last year uh, about you know what kind of board members are, are doing what what their corporations are doing we're going to see just a lot more of these larger commercial art influences on industry as as a whole but then you also see major commercial galleries like pace like hauser also becoming kind of institutional in of them themselves so it's it's this blurring of boundaries that i don't think you know where where the power is actually going to end up at some point the church and state blurring
1: exactly for sure, and I think it's just. I mean, maybe we should also mention the fact is it might maybe from the outside world you probably just think, well, what's the problem with it? Um, it there is a sort of historic thing of commercial, the commercial art world and the sort of rarefied um, museum world not not mixing too much, and the sort of grubby market forces shouldn't be allowed to sort of enter and influence the hallowed land of the public institutions um and that's something that has been breaking down for a long time and really seems to be um breaking down a lot a lot now and whether you agree with that or you disagree with that it's a mash of opinion probably
0: well we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation all these issues i'm sure will be returning to over the course of the year but for now anna and margaret thank you very much thank, thank you, you. If you want to hear what Art Market Insiders are predicting for 2020, including Mark Glimsher, the Chief Executive and President of Pace Gallery, and Jussie Pilkinen the Global President of Christie's, you can read their views online at theartnewspaper.com. Now, before we move on to museums and exhibitions, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Mm-hmm. A Van Gogh self-portrait, dismissed as a fake, has now been authenticated after five years of research. Our correspondent Martin Bailey tells us that the picture, which belongs to Norway's National Museum, was painted in August 1889 in the mental asylum near Saint-Rémy de Provence. According to Louis van Tilbra, the senior researcher at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, it's the only work the artist is known to have painted while suffering from psychosis. It's now on view at the Van Gogh Museum, where it's on loan. The restoration of the Van Eyck Brothers Ghent altarpiece has gone viral this week. It prompted amusement and some dismay at the humanised face of the Lamb of God in the central panel, the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb. As our museum editor, Hannah McGiven's extensive report on the restoration tells us, the altarpiece, painted from the mid-1420s to 1432 by Jan and Hubert van Eyck, has been in the process of being restored since 2012 by Belgium's Royal Institute for Cultural Heritage. And Despite the wealth of prior research, it was only in this restoration that scientists made the astonishing discovery that beneath the layers of yellowed and cloudy varnish, around 70% of the outer panels was obscured by 16th century overpainting. The five lower interior panels, including the adoration of the mystic lamb, will return to their home in St Bavo's Cathedral in Ghent today after three years of treatment, so you can judge the restoration for yourself. And finally, a public appeal has just been launched by the UK's art fund to save the artist and filmmaker Derek Jarman's home and garden in Dungeness on the coast in Kent, which has become a shrine for Jarman's many fans. The Art Fund says that £3.5 million pounds needs to be raised by the 31st of March to save Prospect Cottage, which is at risk of being sold privately, having its contents dispersed and its artistic legacy lost. Our Chief Contributing Editor, Gareth Harris, reports that the money will be used to establish a permanently funded programme to conserve and maintain the building, its contents and its garden for the future. Artists, including Michael Craig Martin, Jeremy Deller and Tassita Dean, have given limited edition works as rewards on the Art Fund's crowdfunding page. You can read about all these stories and more at com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. Now, what does 2020 hold in terms of exhibitions? I'm joined by Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent. Hello, Louisa. Hello. And Jose da Silva, who's our exhibitions editor. Hello, Jose. Hello. Let's begin by talking about Biennales. Uh, Louisa, you've picked out a couple that you think are going to be really significant. Biennales.
4: I mean, they're always a plethora every year now. Well, this year there's not the absolute headline grabbing biennales and, and art events. There's no Venice Biennale. There's no Documenta. But we do have Helsinki, a new biannual, which is which is opening on the. Um, the rather wonderful sounding Valisari Island which opens on the 12th of June and runs until the 27th of September the the theme is the same sea so it's environmental again, interconnected but also impact on all of us and the sense of all this ecological crisis I think is hanging over all the Biennales at this point. Um, closer to home Glasgow International has come round again and this year the theme is attention, meaning paying attention or also our attention being distracted by 24 hour news feeds internet madness and also artwork that requires close attention so I think there's going to be a very strong political theme again here, performative um, in the main sites in the Glasgow Museum of Modern Art and the main galleries in Glasgow but also in sites across the city. And then off we go to Manifesta in Marseille which is the European Nomadic Biennial it pops up in all kinds of unexpected places. It started off in Rotterdam uh, last year it was in Palermo and this year it is in Marseille and the, the the title of the, of the uh, Biennale is um, Traite Union, which apparently means hyphen in French. So it's about joining, but also separating. And again, the notion of Marseille as a port, as an entrepôt on the edge of the Mediterranean. And there's going to be issues of um, the notion of kind of connecting and different kind of movements of masses and a sense of diasporas and, and a sense of fluidity. So that's, that's them. And then the Liverpool Biennial on the 11th of July, um, which has its notion, it's, it's got a wonderful title, The Stomach and the Port. So again, a port city, a sense of the mouth. They've got these different themes: the mouth and the belly about, about you know, populations arriving in Liverpool, about how they how they distribute themselves throughout the sites again in the city, and there's, this has this has. A large amount of, of artists it has historical figures like judy chicago um the british realist ethel cahoon but also many many contemporary artists of all generations i think that's going to be really extremely interesting and then of course you know i'm not going to reel them all off but you've also got sydney riga bucharest berlin Guangzhou, sao paulo folks and triennial bangkok taipei cochimeras i mean you know it's a plethora but those are my top top tips
0: uh, before we get on to the exhibitions as a whole, uh, there is another massive 500th anniversary this year, and it's Raphael this year. It was Leonardo last year, of course. Uh, 500th anniversary of Raphael's death. And I thought... it. This- What's really interesting about Raphael is, of course, if we'd have done this podcast two hundred years ago, then Raphael would absolutely have been on the the same sort of level of stratospheric fame as Leonardo or Michelangelo. But Raphael seems to have fallen away, while while those have continued to climb to a certain extent in the public imagination. And I think it's quite interesting that in in civilizations, Kenneth Clarke actually says that he's he's the supreme harmonizer, and that accounts for him sort of falling away. That there's that he's Art is somehow too gentle for the for, for the 20th century as it was then, but and now the 21st century.
4: I think we live in such emotionally charged times, and I think you know the Rembrandts and the Leonardos and the Michelangelos. Leonardo not quite so much, but nonetheless, there's still that sort of sense of, of you know Dynamism intense intensity. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know when one thinks of Raphael, one thinks of classicism, fantastic compositions, a kind of cool, more conceptual approach. And don't forget, he also died at the age of 37. Yeah. So there's not that you know massive sort of arc of of, of, of you know decades of career to, to trace as well but he was incredibly of course you know v- versatile one thinks of the prints the tapestries the drawings the designs the architecture as well as the great paintings so I think it's going to be a fascinating show.
0: Indeed so, so there will be a whole series of Raphael events and I won't go through them all now but clearly the sort of landmark moment is this National Gallery show in October and as you suggest there Louisa it's very much emphasising Raphael as this multimedia figure um, and intriguingly on the multimedia front and with a sort of sense of a klaxon given the disaster that has been their Leonardo experience. They obviously can't feature the stanza, the great works that are in the uh, the, uh, private the library of, of Julius II in in the Vatican but they will be recreating them in innovative means one hopes it is more successful than the Leonardo experience
4: well less theatrical let's be a bit more old school and just straightforwardly taking you through amazing artworks and let them talk for themselves rather than with bells, whistles and light effects one thinks
0: now that's at the end of the year but it is actually an, an extraordinary year at the National Gallery this year let's talk about Artemisia to begin with
4: well Artemisia Gentileschi you know the woman, the seventeenth century woman artist who took on the old master, male history painting, figurative painting, mythological paintings, I mean astonishing for a woman to even practise an artist painting any form of genre, but to be right at the top of the tree like she was with an incredible forty year career which which you know had her working with heads of state and you know, reclaiming these great subjects, but from a female perspective. So you've got her famous Judith and Holofernes. These two versions can be brought together in the show of Judith absolutely giving it to You know, blood, gore beheading, decapitation taking place, her great Cleopatra, Lucretia, all rendered through female eyes and with no holds barred. She was a great storyteller and spent time at the end of the 1630s in the UK as well, working in the court of Charles I. And it's going to be her great self-portrait from that period as well. Now, her, up you know, until recently, her, her her career has been... She's been sort of sidetracked in a way. I mean, from being a woman artist, she was huge in her lifetime and only really rediscovered in the twentieth century, or really twenty first century, coming to the twenty first century. And also, of course, the terrible story of her early rape by by a, a colleague of her her artist father's. And the famous trial where she was tortured by thumbscrews. I mean, bad enough for anybody, but particularly for an artist, but was exonerated. But hopefully this exhibition will show her to be a supreme artist, a fantastic storyteller, and this you know appalling episode at the beginning of her life won't be overshadowing the entire exhibition.
0: Now, another major show at the National is Titian, Love, Desire, Death. I have to say this is the one I'm most looking forward to, probably more than any other exhibition in, in, in the UK this year. It, it reunites the six great poesies, which are six mythological paintings painted for Philip II, King of Spain, and briefly in this period, in the 1550s, King of England, because he was married to Mary I. And they are these extraordinary mythological paintings, tumbling figures, Rampant sensuous nudity, incredibly sto- incredible storytelling, and of course, extraordinary painting. And that, that, that for me, is something I, I cannot wait to see.
4: I can't wait either. It's coming soon, sixteenth of March or the fourteenth of June. So we've got time to see it. I mean, based on Ovid's Metamorphoses, you've got these Im- incredible stories: Diana and Action, Diana and Callisto, Venus and Adonis. You know, all united and for the first time since they left the court of Spain is going to be really quite something.
0: Now, one of the great centres for old masters uh, in London is the Dalish Picture Gallery, but they're actually doing a show of British surrealism, which looks really intriguing, Louisa.
4: Absolutely, yes. They've actually established quite a reputation for showing 20th century British art alongside their old masterly programme and indeed contemporary art as well. And this is the British surrealism. I mean, Britain, you don't think about surrealist artists in Britain. The great names are Magritte, Dali, Ernst, but actually Britain came quite late to the party, but there was a great show of surrealism in 1936 in London. London, where quite a lot of British surrealists were dragooned in, or artists who seemed quite surrealist were dragooned in. Henry Moore, Paul Nash, um, and then a whole load of other figures who, you know, one doesn't hear about that much these days Conroy Maddox, Ithel Cahoon, Grace Pelthorpe and Ruby Mednikoff, who had a bit of a renaissance last year. And these artists were extraordinary. And they really tapped, tapped into a kind of indigenous British surrealist spirit, which is what this show is bringing out. Because this show says we may be late to the party in terms of 20th century surrealism, but actually there's been a kind of indigenous surreal spirit in, the, in Britain right from the word go, proto-surrealists they call them so you know Fusilli, Blake, Lewis Carroll and actually the show is being organised thematically so there's, there's um, lust war um, radical politics, the uncanny dreams, so it's going to be thematically shown and will we'll bring to light some really extraordinary British figures as well as figures like, like Henry Moore, like Francis Bacon who had surrealist tendencies so I think it's going to be a really interesting eye-opener
0: There's going to be a really intriguing-sounding figurative painting show at the White And I should say we just had this conversation about the market and about how there is a rise in... Uh, women artists who are painting the figure in in radical new ways on the market, you know, lots of lots of attention in that sense. And in fact, the show that seems to be sort of bringing lots of them together is this Radical Figures show, as it's called, at the Whitechapel Gallery opening in early February.
4: Well, what's good about it, I think, is it's, it's ten painters. You know, they're going in depth with a few. There could be a whole raft of, of, of a parade of painters, but but it's about facing the new millennium, looking looking at looking at the looking at the body in terms of desire, identity sexuality and so it's very much about issues within the body but i mean an extraordinary array of artists i mean shabalala self um, uh, uh, exploring notions of, of stereotypical identity both in terms of race and in terms of gender you've got michael armitage the young kenyan born british based artist who, who makes you know, history paintings and imaginary paintings so you've got the body reimagined in many many different ways Talamadani Showing abject, strange, often male figures from her native Iran, being 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 kind of put back in firmly in their place by her. Cecily Brown, boiling brushstrokes coming out of almost abstract senses of of, of old masters and, and mistresses being being re being re, redefined. So I think it's going to be a very dynamic show, and showing that you know there is by no means something retrospective about making figurative paintings. It's going to be very much about the issues of today.
0: Just briefly, the Whitechapel will be putting on an archive display, which is all about a new spirit in painting, which was the 19- 1981 show at the Royal Academy, and of course famously included No Women, Absolutely. but the Whitechapel show features seven out of the ten as women. Absolutely, yes,
4: and also one of them, Cecily Brown, is also going to be showing in Blenheim as well, so she's going to be inserting her extraordinary works, which which are epically um, relating to old master paintings, but very much from a female perspective, but also popular culture as well. And inserting those in the historical paintings of Blenheim, which, of course, is all about, you know, war and conquest and power, is going to be a very interesting combination.
0: Uh, now, let's move on to the Tate. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about the Tate's programme this year. It is absolutely extraordinary. Um, but we're going to pick out a few shows and flag up what, what's around them. Um, Louisa, let's start by talking about uh, another figurative painter, Lynette yadon one of the leading figurative painters. I think leading, one of the world's leading painters right now, I would say. Absolutely,
4: yes. I mean, she's become known for these enigmatic paintings of mainly black figures, in in, in sort of old masterly kind of poses but painted with very vigorous contemporary brushstrokes. They're very enigmatic but they engage you directly, often eyeballing you straight out of the canvas. But actually they're not real people. They're fictitious personages that she's dreamt up from her imagination. She writes as well as she paints. And their lush, lush colours, their stances have a very kind of old masterly feel but they're also extraordinarily contemporary and she really is a remarkable painter and they're also all made in one hit. She will make these paintings in a single day, of course drawing on all her, all her kind of experience as an artist. They've got tremendous energy and I'm really looking forward to seeing a whole show devoted to her career arc. It, they date from 2003 when she graduated from the academy schools so and now she's an internationally established figure but still pushing at the envelope. One sees the palette shift, become more lush, one sees different kinds of conversations Configurations of figures, and it's going to be a real, a really exciting show.
0: I think significantly in terms of that show, there'll be a lot of works on paper as well as the paintings, which is different from the Serpentine show, which actually was not that long ago. But she's producing so much excellent work, I think that it justifies having a, a, a show so soon after the last.
4: one. Absolutely, I mean her prints are extraordinary, and I think you know she's she's been she's very prolific too, but in a very focused way so I think it will be a, a distinct development from her Serpentine show yes so we'll be seeing Lynette from the 19th of May to the 31st of August
3: um, it's worth pointing out that that show will also travel to the uh, Guggenheim in Bilbao um, towards the end of the year in the autumn and then to SF MoMA in San Francisco next year so it's quite kind of uh, important it's going to be an important couple of years for um for her. Yeah, I think I think that's it. She's
0: she is a, very much an international figure, isn't she? She's a, a leading painter across the world. Absolutely.
4: And I mean, she's shown in biennales, and and she's also had a big show at the New Museum in New York uh, a couple of years ago. So she's she's very much part of the international scene.
0: Also at Tate Britain, coming up just before Lynette in March, is Aubrey Beardsley. And I think this is going to be a really amazing show because, unlike the V&A show, which must be probably 20 years ago now, um, it's going to focus on the drawings as opposed to the prints. And, the, you know, the drawings are the the works where you really do see that extraordinary, on, on the one hand, this incredible, beautiful, delicate line, but also that sort of uh, real... Uh, fervent imagination that we've grown used to.
4: Boiling imagination, I mean it's extraordinary to think that he died when he was only 25, he died of TB and so he had such a short career but he's totally defined the 1890s totally defined the fan it became his period and these highly erotic, highly kind of provocative, exquisite drawings as you say, to see the drawings rather than the prints in such quantity is going to be a real very exciting and I mean, we all know about him, but I think to see the full scope of what he actually achieved just by using a line is going to be really exciting.
0: In the summer at Tate Modern there's an exhibition of Zanelli Maholi and Zanelli was one of the absolute standout artists I think in the most recent Venice Biennale, Louisa. Absolutely.
4: Their self portraits, Somnyama Nagonyama, I probably pronounced it completely wrong, Hail the Dark Lioness. There were these self portraits of of the artist blown up to billboard size. The contrast had been accentuated in these photographic self portraits, so their skin was seemed to be very black, the whites of the eyes, the teeth, that the whole kind of contrast within within these photographs was really accentuated. And they were wearing these extraordinary headdresses and bedecked and, and adorned by banal household stuff clothes pegs, scouring pads, bits of cable. So you've got this sense of defying gender, defying ethnicity, defying domesticity and gazing out in these extraordinary elaborate headdresses that look like tribal headdresses but were made of domestic clobber. And also we're going to be seeing all the other strands of their work because since the 1990s uh, Moholy's been depicting the LGBTQI population of South Africa, Cape Town, Johannesburg and the population of individuals who have been heavily, heavily discriminated against. This series will, will, be, will be tracking um, often the same individual over several years and seeing changes and developments within, within this population, within the individuals of the population. Um, they've been making these series since post-apartheid 1990s and so it's very much about defying victimhood, defying discrimination and actually showing individuals developing through the arc of their life. It's going to be a really extraordinary
0: show. Now, very briefly, let's talk about the three exhibitions of leading men at uh, the Tate Modern this year. So uh, Steve McQueen in uh, February. I'm puzzled by this show a bit. I'm very excited by it on the one hand, but then I saw the list of works recently and they're omitting anything before 1999 so there's no bear his really major breakthrough work there's no drum roll another really major video installation work and there's no deadpan which is the work which was famously in the turner prize and uh is i think one of the absolute best works he's ever made so to a certain extent i'm sort of excited but frustrated that, that we're not going to see the whole picture of this really extraordinary video. Obviously. Well
4: particularly because we're thinking of him more and more now as a filmmaker. I mean of course there's there's his, his, his current project with the school children in, in the Duveen's in Tate Britain which, which you know puts him back into the sort of art category but community outreach as well. But you know one thinks of him in cinematic terms so it's nice to see the films at the origins of this work but there still will be many great pieces there to show that he can handle the cinematic medium in a way that is really you know a- a- astonishing
0: and the, um, the the third warhol re- retrospective of my lifetime in london or certainly that i've been conscious of is about to happen too we don't need to say much about this it's andy warhol it is a retrospective there are some portraits which i think have been very relatively rarely shown of transgender people um and i think that is one slightly different uh, body of work in it but it, it, it's a warhol retrospective fundamentally um, yes, I mean, I kind of feel like, do we really need to be
4: seeing more of Andy Warhol at this point? I mean, obviously he's a huge magisterial figure, but there's been you know, great shows very recently. So let's hope this turns up some new stones.
0: Indeed, and then lastly, there's a big Bruce Nauman show, and I think I, this is the most exciting show of the autumn at Tate for me. Um, there's also a big Rodin sculpture exhibition, which I almost always forget about. But there's a but but yes, Bruce Nauman, arguably the most influential artist of his generation, and still exerting influence. Over young artists today, that's in October at Tate Modern.
4: Each phase of his career is often an entire career arc for subsequent artists. And I think it would be fantastic to see a proper, meaty retrospective of his work.
0: There's a really unusual photography show, and I think a really landmark photography show, potentially, at the Barbican opening in February, which is, which is called Masculinities. Um, uh, and it's a, a sprawling show, huge show. They do do these big shows very well, though, at the Barbican. is liberation through photography.
4: I mean, it's exploring notions of masculinity from the 1960s to now, and I think it's really topical. In our Me Too period, where traditional notions of the masculine subject have been so fiercely debated, to have a show that deals with queer identity, the black body, power, patriarchy, the family. It ranges from artists, from, you know, Maplethorpe to Isaac Julian, Sunil Gupta, female artists as well, um, depicting Renika Distra, depicting teenage men, uh, Catherine Opie, working with with notions of masculinity within within different queer populations. So I think it's going to be a really interesting show. It's not going to be are kind of setting the record straight it's going to be complicating matters
0: even more which is ideal And jose there's a, there's a preview of this in our February there
3: issue There is, yes, there's a great preview in our February issue by Tom Seymour um, and he, he highlights one of the kind of interest, more interesting works in the show which will be um, some photographs by the Taliban so you never really kind of associate the Taliban with um, a, a nuanced masculinity but the these photographs were discovered um, in a photoshop um, in Afghanistan and um they actually explained that the that under the Taliban photography was kind of banned. Um, except for photographs for um sort of um documents like passports or, or things like that. And so some of the Taliban um soldiers would kind of exploit this loophole and photograph themselves sort of wearing coal under their eyes and kind of holding hands and these very kind of We'd maybe say if feminine photographs um were kind of discovered um and they'll be on show. They were discovered by the president of the Magnum Photos Agency, Thomas Forzak. Um and he'll be exhibiting these kind of um works that he collected in the book, um, called Simply Taliban. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean again, this this is the this is the potential for this show to really
0: disrupt things. Very, very different ways of looking at how men are represented in photos.
4: I think that's fascinating to complicate and to and, and also just to kind of complete Complete the fact that you know nothing is nothing is set in stone. Everything is fluid.
0: um say let, let's move on to Europe. Um, as I pointed out earlier in this podcast, there's been this tremendous storm about a uh, Van Eyck uh, restoration in Ghent, which is rather distracted from what is quite a major event and big exhibition.
3: The Ghent Altarpiece underwent, has been undergoing a restoration project, which began in 2012. And it has been a live restoration happening at the Museum of Fine Arts in Ghent. The restoration kind of inspired what will now be the largest exhibition of Van Eyck ever. It'll include around half of his 20 to 22 um, autograph works. Um, Among these will be panels from the Ghent altarpiece. So the outer panels, which were restored in the first phase of the restoration project. Um, And then the other kind of, uh, I guess, the interesting thing about this show is that the panels will be displayed in pairs at eye level, where usually they're kind of they're above eye level. So you get a chance to kind of look really closely. Uh, alongside this, the um, exhibition will also compare Van Eyck, who's kind of a, the master of Northern Renaissance, with um, some of his contemporaries in Italy. So the uh, museum have, had, have got some very uh, amazing loans, such as Masaccio's The Virgin Child from the, uh, from the Uffizi, and also Fra Angelico's Saints Francis Receiving the Stigmata, which will be exhibited alongside two versions by Van Eyck. Um, One coming from uh, Turin's Galleria Sabauda, and the and one from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So there'll be this chance to kind of compare the the greats from the Northern Renaissance with the greats of the kind of uh, Southern Italian Renaissance.
0: That sounds really exciting. It's something we just really don't often get the opportunity. They're so ghettoized in our museums.
3: Absolutely, yes. I think the the, I mean, one of the reasons this happened is because there are so few um, Van Eyck works in existence. It's actually difficult to put on a very big show of just his works. Um, and also the other problem is that many of the museums, many of the collections that have his, that own his work, um, their Van Eyck is the kind of key or key treasure in their collection. So it's very rare that they'll lend these out. So the the exhibition has been built around these panels, which the St. Bava Cathedral in Ghent have said will never be loaned out again. So this is really, I mean, the, the term once in a lifetime gets kind of bandied around a lot, but this really will be a once in a lifetime opportunity to see these works up close and to see Van Eyck, who's probably, in my opinion, one of the, Greatest painters ever. Um, it'd be an opportunity to see his work up close and, and, and in kind of combinations that you'll never see again.
0: From the distant past to the to the very present, um, one of the big shows of the year in Europe is is undoubtedly Christo at the Centre Pompidou. But also, he's doing a massive project.
3: That's right. Yes. Um, so there'll be a kind of um, a, a sort of straightforward. No, well, an exhibition of his his Christo and Jean Claude's work at the Centre Pompidou. But the kind of more interesting, or more f- kind of the, the fun thing that's happening later on in the autumn, I think it was meant to happen in the spring, but it's been pushed back to the autumn, is that he'll be wrapping the Arc de Triomphe in cloth, as he's very famously done with the Reichstag in Germany, for example. Um, and this is a project that he and Jean-Claude um, came up with, actually, when they lived in Paris in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. So it's kind of taken, as with many of his projects, it's taken decades to kind of come about. But I think I'm, I'm very excited to see that wrapping up of this work in the centre of Paris. Uh, Louisa,
0: you interviewed Christo for the podcast, didn't you? It was quite a difficult process. He's very, he's very set in set in his his path. I mean, I suppose you have to be. But that I driven, don't think
4: you? all credit to him because he pulls off this stuff on his own. He self funds it. He set up his own his own foundations, his own monetary sources, and to pull off something like you know wrapping up the Arc de Triomphe is quite remarkable,
0: really. It's, it's certainly going to be one of the images of the year that we can imagine being reproduced right across the world. Um, there's a really fascinating looking show at the Bayler Foundation in Basel, which is Goya, a, a retrospective essentially of Goya in, in Basel.
3: Yes, um, at this show at the, um, at the Foundation Baylor, which is just outside, yeah, just outside Basel, as you say, um, will focus, it's a retrospective, but they'll focus mostly on his mature and late, later works. Um, there'll be around seventy, actually more than seventy paintings, including uh, La Maja Vestida, which is this famous um, painting in the Prado, which is the dressed maja um, as opposed to the nude maja. <laughs> um, and I think the there'll be that'll be one of the kind of key works in the show. Yeah, and then there's, I mean, the
0: important thing with Goya, of course, is always to have paintings alongside the works on paper, because in a way, are we in a period where Goya's uh, works on paper his the, the Los Caprichos and the Disasters of War have in a way become his
3: most famous works I think Goya's prints have become part of popular culture more so than his paintings um, such as The Dream of Reason produces monsters you can see it everywhere it's on prints on t-shirts on book covers um, so be, I think this will be a real kind of opportunity to kind of go back and and look at his paintings, and get up close with his paintings,
4: and to see them together too, because I'm always his paintings in the Prado. You know, there's there's there's, there's the, the the Prado Foundation, the, the black paintings, and these are the ones that we always associate. And so, to be able to see the prints as well alongside, I think, would be really exceptional.
0: Indeed, and and um, let's move on to the U.S. now. Uh, there's lots of really major shows. The first. That really strikes me as being like a massive show, and it's only at MoMA; it's not touring. Is the Donald Judd retrospective at MoMA, Joseph?
3: Yes, this will be his first major US retrospective in the in around the or in more than three decades, um, with uh, around sixty works, sort of spanning his whole career.
0: Indeed, and, and one of the great things about Judd, of course, is that in the last decade of his career, one of the things he really did was, was push the colour of his works into new dimensions. We've got these, these forms, these uh, manufactured forms, which increasingly became his priority, and then suddenly in the 80s, there was this burst of colour.
4: Inside, often you have the sort of steel cubes with this vivid colour inside, it's almost like a, a, a very straightforward sort of Savile Row suit, flashing an amazing lining suddenly. You know, you've got the sense of the classic and then the sort of voluptuous colour almost.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a major show at the Whitney, which looks really intriguing. And again, that's previewed in the next issue of the art newspaper, Jose. Uh,
3: Yes, it's called um, Vida Americana, Mexican muralists remake American art, uh, 1925 to 1945. It's a rather long uh, title, but it covers this kind of key period following the Mexican Revolution. This kind of two decades where there was uh, an incredible influence coming from a Mexican muralist's um, on uh, American young American artists, so you have artists such as Jackson Pollock and Philip Guston, who who worked alongside or who were taught by um, these muralists such as um, David Alfaro Siqueiros or Diego Rivera. So I think this is a kind of incredible show to put on at the moment, especially when these, you have these kind of tensions with the border and, and obviously Trump wanting to build a wall across the border. Um, and it's actually going to be a massive show, with uh, around 200 works covering uh, um, 60 artists.
4: And I think with the branding of abstract expressionism as being this quintessentially American art from the kind of, you know, 1950s onwards through the Cold War, to actually now put back the really important piece in this jigsaw puzzle that actually its roots with Mexican muralist socialist art is really crucial at this point.
0: Absolutely, and that's a nice uh, link to, a I think, uh, the show that i'm most looking forward to seeing that, that begins in america and then tours to various venues and comes to Tate Modern actually next year which is Philip Guston now and i would say push comes to shove that guston may be the most influential american painter today i would say i mean i i hear him mentioned by more artists now than than any other of artists of his generation but it's very much
4: the latter figurative guston isn't it because guston of course had this whole sea change from being an abstract artist into this troubled scary so-called bad painting cartoonish you know senses of of, of, of mankind in kind of abject abject um, doubt and, and meltdown and vulnerability and i think that's that's what the contemporary artists have seized onto
0: indeed there's that brilliant quote by him and i'm paraphrasing here but it's something like who am i in the studio comparing a red to a blue when there's all this chaos going on outside the studio you know this political chaos and um and one of the interesting things is that they're reuniting lots of paintings from that famous 1970 show at Marlborough Fine Art, which was the show where the famous... Hilton Kramer review appeared, um, a Mandarin masquerading as a Stumblebum, and it's one of the most famous, sort of absolutely excoriating review Kramer was completely wrong. He got it completely stumble wrong. Stumblebum claimed the day. <laughs> Indeed, exactly. Um, another great painter who has a major show in the States this year is Gerhard Richter. It begins, I think it's the last show at the Met Breuer, um, and then we'll travel to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art later in the year. It, amazingly, the first. Richter retrospective for a generation in the States. We've had the Panorama show which toured here in Europe, but um, I think it's really important because to a certain extent, Richter has become associated with stratospheric prices on the market, and it's important that that, that an, uh, an audience sees his work in its breadth.
4: And his a variety of his work. I mean, the fact that he made sculpture as well as paintings. You know, the fact that his paintings veered so much from the sort of photographic to the history to the famous swipe paintings. To the, you know, I mean, this sense that it's it's much more than the market. He's a magisterial figure, and I'm astonished that this is his first major show in in America for
3: so long.
0: Yes, indeed. Now we talked about a lot of male artists in a row there, but there's a big show of Judy Chicago coming up as well, Josie. Uh,
3: that's right. Yes, the um, the Young Museum in um, in San Francisco. Um, which opens on the 9th of May. It goes goes until uh, 6th of September. But it's the first major retrospective of of such an important artist. Um, It'll include 150 works. Um, Unfortunately, it won't include The Dinner Party, her most famous work, which is um, permanently installed at the Brooklyn Museum. The work will be represented by a complete set of drawings that she made for these plates, which kind of depicted um, famous women from from the past, such as uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, who we've mentioned already today, and Georgiou O'Keefe, and several other kind of mythical women. Um, so there's the, the, these very beautiful kind of detailed drawings that she that she made will be kind of one of the key uh, works in the show. I think long overdue show. And don't
4: forget she'll be popping up at Liverpool Biennial as well. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean uh, in July. So to... I think yeah, there is a sense of of these key feminist figures are now actually getting their proper exposure. I mean late in the day, but it's 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 nice. That I'm not quite sure what she's doing for Liverpool. Whether it's going to be a new commission or existing work, but it's good that her prominence is is it's not just the big show and then all goes quiet again.
0: Uh, We've barely skimmed the surface, but I think there's a lot of food for thought there, a lot of uh, things to inspire our listeners to trot off to their local museums. Uh, Jose and Louisa, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You can get The Year Ahead, our month-by-month guide to 2020, if you subscribe to The Art Newspaper. To find the subscription to suit you, visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you've enjoyed it, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Anna and Margaret, Louisa and Jose, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week when we have an interview with the artist Kent Monkman about his extraordinary commission for the Great Hall at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Bye for now.